I love the crackles from the vinyl. Right, isn't it funny? It's on YouTube, but it's still doing vinyl crackles. It's really great, and especially with Eno. I have the I same thing. It. I have a whole bunch of Undertones records from the 1980s. They all, they're all digitized now, but they yeah. all crackle and pop. It has a warmer sound. It's great. <laughs> This is hell. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. But if you live in places like Silicon Valley, you likely don't think of capitalism as a plague that we should protect ourselves against as much as it is a boon, a great benefit to society, to everybody. There's nothing but helpful for the best and the brightest that humanity has to offer. Motivating innovations that make life more convenient, if not simply better. After all, the particular brand of Silicon Valley capitalism has disrupted our lives in myriad ways, from getting a ride, to grocery shopping, to watching movies, to bicycling, to vacation rentals, and basically everything in between. And the disruptors would argue each of those has been improved upon by their wonderful apps. Their impact is seen as nothing but good, as long as their disruptions reap in millions, if not billions, in profits for venture capitalists. In Palo Alto, home of Stanford University, the consequences of those disruptions are far outside their bubble of what residents view as normal, but what our guest today describes as not only normal, but weirdly normal. And not just weirdly normal, but haunted by a past of indigenous genocide, eugenics, and planetary, exhausting economic growth that drives inequality and exploitation far from the consciousness of Palo Altoans. From an early age, what is known as the Palo Alto system has trained, lo has trained local children that they deserve the luxury within which they find themselves, just as their ancestors did before them. They are heirs to greatness, that is, until some of them are confronted by the reality of the areas and their families' past and the role they played in the exploitation of, again, both humanity and the planet. However, there may be a way to stop the globally destructive nature and power of Silicon Valley. I know it's hard to imagine, but we might actually be able to do something about it. We'll be introduced to the fascin fascinating history of Silicon Valley and what we might be able to do about it in a few minutes when we have the return of critic and journalist Malcolm Harris, author of Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. Malcolm is on our show back in 2020. In an interview we recently featured on our week-long series, This Is Hell, The Lost Pandemic Tapes, Volume 2, uh, which we played these uh, tapes were lost because uh, our, our home station, WNUR, was completely off the air at the early months of the pandemic, and so... Uh, the people who listen to WNUR never heard this interview until just recently. So at that time, he was on uh, to talk about his book with the best title ever. But the FCC will not allow me to say it on air. So let's just say it's called S is F'd Up and BS. History since the end of history. Malcolm had already been on the show in 2017 when we discussed his earlier book, Kids These Days, Human Capital, and the Making of Millennials, which he edited. 
Find out more about Palo Alto at paloaltothebook.com. Follow Malcolm on Twitter at Big Mean Internet. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, what's new by you? What's up, Chuck? I'm doing so rad. You know what I've been getting up to? We're doing this inventory at the library. Uh-huh. Like I'm, I'm running a computer program that's help, helping us find missing volumes. And we're in the occult section. Most of the sections have like two missing volumes, but people have sticky fingers around the occult, Chuck. <laughs> really? When we're talking about UF- UFOs or sexual astrologies or Bigfoot, it's like... They're like video game characters running over turkey legs. They just suck them up into their bodies. I can't find any of these books. Really? Yeah. Lots of shoplifting going on at the library? An awful lot when we're talking about witches for sure. What do you call it when it's not really at a shop? I guess I it's call just it library theft. lifting. Yeah, there's a book lifting. Book lifting, I like that. Yeah. Uh, Dan, tell everybody about the 50 Flip Experiment. 50 Flip Experiment is uh, my dexterous fine art. Uh, what I do is I make a comic book. It's a little zine. You go to 50flipexperiment.com, and you can get issue 31. I'm about to put out issue 32. It's critically acclaimed. Is it? Yeah. Who they, are those critics? Well, you know, there's a blog called Optical Sloth just did a 50 Flip Week. He was kind of no behind. Kidding. And so, like, wow, for like a month, he, it was like once a week he reviewed. He caught himself up. So, I don't know. Whitey over at Optical Sloth likes it. <laughs> That's awesome. Optical and Sloth. OpticalSloth.com. So yesterday was my partner's birthday, and we did absolutely nothing as she decided that we should put off celebrating for a day or two as we have both been far too busy with work to find any time to do anything but work. The last thing she wanted to do was say go out to eat and the whole time both of us would be worrying about what work we still had to do so it was birthday interrupted and postponed until we can relax and actually enjoy our time together and but still at about 9 30 at night last night i decided we should have do something special so i ordered korean food and it was fantastic (laughs) dan what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience this week's question from hell is what are you or where are you conducting your secret war where are you conducting your secret war? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct it to us via, direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. As always, we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of this week's show. And this week's show ends with Seb Vupper and his segment, The Past Inside the Present, when Seb gives us the historical context from the past so we have a better understanding of the present. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask. I know, we have a tote bag. The coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the... 21st Century Flash Drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. We also got a couple more prints from the good people of Kennedy Prints in Detroit. I'll be opening these a little bit later after our interview and telling you what they sent us. Always appreciate the great work of Kennedy Prints in the McDougal Hunt neighborhood on the east side of Detroit. Really appreciate their support. A fantastic group of not artists, but printers, as they have stressed in a letter to me in the past. And I will read a little bit of that letter as well, coming up after our guest. Speaking of coming up, the haunting history of of Palo Alto and Silicon Valley. I almost said the haunting history of Dan Hill. 
Well, there you go. <laughs> I don't know how that came out. Uh, Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth. Dan, what is uh, Jeff talking about during the moment of truth this week? Well, I don't know if I can answer that entirely, but I do know that he'll find things could be better. Or, but they could be worse. And <laughs> we'll tell you everything that's happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime. Because this is hell, and a great fortune has been made in the Silicon Valley city of Palo Alto, home to Stanford University, which itself has made a massive fortune on its own. But what possible crime could be behind that fortune? Here to help us understand what is haunting Silicon Valley. Malcolm Harris is on to talk about his book. Uh, how did I lose my page right here? Palo Alto. Uh, you can find out more about Palo Alto the book at paloaltothebook.com. And you can follow Malcolm on Twitter at Big Mean Internet. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Malcolm. Thanks for having me back, Chuck. It's great to have you on the show, sir. Sorry about waking you up so early in the morning. Oh, not at all. Hey, uh, so I, I hate when people ask a question like, what is your favorite or what is the like most important thing that you learned from your research or anything like that? So what was one of the more surprising things to you that you learned about the city where you are from? That is Palo Alto. What's one of the more surprising things that you just simply didn't know until you did your research? Uh, the first thing in like a really broad way was just how short this historical period is. So the story I'm telling is the story of Anglo colonization um, of Alta California. And as a history, that's only, you know, since mid 19th century uh, is when it begins, right, with the gold rush in 1849. And that's really like very, very short amount of time. And when we think about the colonization of North America by the United States, this is a story we try to relegate like way, way, way back to the, you know, revolutionary period or the pre-revolutionary period, the colonial period of United States history. But that's not the case for the West, right? This is part of the modern history of the United States, the United States as exists, and as it exists post-Civil War, as it exists, you know, in Reconstruction in the 1870s, which is when Palo Alto gets founded. And so that, like, starting assumption that I need a different kind of history of for the colonization of Alta California was like a... a foundationally surprising thing because I had to write the book around that and the result for me was trying to pull California out of this national American history and put it into world history which is I think where it really belongs and then you look at other places in the world that have you know similar historical arcs to California and you're not looking at Boston anymore you're looking at South Africa or you're looking at Australia or you're looking at Algeria uh, and so it totally twists your whole perspective on this place so it it's not the like surprising anecdote even it was more foundational than that this the surprise that this history takes place in a different time than we might commonly conceive of it Again, we are speaking with Malcolm Harris, author of Palo Alto, A History of California Capitalism and the World. So that's weird. I didn't really think about that because it, it like how quickly things can become normal or natural or seemingly forever. Do you think then in general that there's a 
seeing seeing as how the United States has this very short history, uh, you know, and especially this kind of the kind of colonialism when it goes farther and farther west, do you think that there that it's almost essential for us to have a kind of denial of history because that makes me think of you know what's going on in Florida how important do you think the denial of history is to people who live in the United States very important and in fact I think that's one of the real exports of California in general and uh, Silicon Valley in particular this historical ignorance and you can see it even in like the business models where the Silicon Valley is constantly reinventing things that already exist. And to do so, uh, they have to be forgetting, constantly forgetting. So if like, you know, they're going to reinvent the bus or the taxi cab or something, they have to forget the social history of these forms and just think of things as just ideas that they come up with, uh, randomly. But when I wrote this book and when I started writing this book, it was in the midst of what I think is a national reconsideration of American history. And I think a lot of that happens around 1870s and the history of Reconstruction post-Civil War and thinking of that era as sort of a second founding of America. And California doesn't really get told as part of that history of the 1870s refounding of America, but it absolutely is. It's essential. And the the America that comes out of the, that period, um, California plays a huge role in it, a central role in what becomes this new American empire. Uh, and forgetting that is very important to Silicon Valley's self-conception. And if you talk about Silicon Valley now or the Bay Area or Palo Alto, it used to be that people thought like post-war era, you know, the the microchip companies now, you know, maybe they can think back to the dot-com era, maybe, right? Maybe they just think back to Facebook, which is probably like, you know, half the people when they when you ask about Silicon Valley, maybe that's when they think it starts is Facebook. And so it's constantly forgetting its own history. And one of the virtues of that is that it gets to constantly forget its own crimes, right? What it did to get where it was, got. So uh, one, I was mentioning earlier that uh, the good folks in Detroit at, in McDougal Hunt neighborhood on uh, Detroit's east side, these uh, the Kennedy prints, these amazing printers, uh, they sent me these cards. They send me these cards every so often. They're like five by eight. They're beautiful prints. And then they have a historic quote on them. One of them is uh, the one, one of the ones I got this week is from Upton Sinclair. It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it, which seems to be at the part of understanding Palo Alto in Silicon Valley. Why do you think this reconsideration of history is happening now? Do you think it's because people are starting to understand what their salary depends upon? I think that's part of it. And I think we've also seen a decade plus of uh, uprisings throughout the United States, you know, around the world as well. But in the United States, the level of unrest that has characterized our national life uh, has changed a lot. You know, uh, I grew up under the George W. Bush administration, under Clinton, um, and the political tensions that characterized our national life are not the ones we're talking about now, right? We weren't talking about capitalism and racism in the same sort of historical way. Uh, and critical way that we are now. And I think that's a result of street movements, right? I think that's a result of uh, 
Occupy, I think that's a result of Black Lives Matter. Um, I think it's a result of the George Floyd uprising. So uh, I don't think this is happening just because we are getting access to new historical documents and new historical interpretations, though I think that's very important. And I write it in my book that I don't think I could have written this book, certainly not the way I did, without the research and the scholarly work that came out of the ethnic studies revolt um, of the, the closing quarter of the 20th century within academia and the books that were produced as a result of that. That kind of intellectual work was essential to the reconsiderations we're doing now. But I think at least as, as important were the street movements. So after Occupy, even those people who supported Occupy Wall Street, even those who were sympathetic for the cause of Occupy Wall Street, were saying that after it was over, it was a failure. And I disagreed with that at the time. Do you think Occupy Wall Street was a failure? No, no. And I, I, I may phrase it differently. I'm not even sure Occupy Wall Street is over, right? Uh, I think we're still, the tensions that characterize that, that uprising um, have been continually inflamed, right? The system can't answer the critique of Occupy Wall Street. It's not like since then we've had reforms that have uh, made the passions that created that movement unnecessary. That hasn't happened. Instead, we've seen the increase of those passions. We've seen the increase of that analysis and those class tensions um, <clears throat> within American society. So in that way, uh, Historically, when we look back on this period, I'm not sure we're going to say like, oh, yeah, that was something that just happened in 2011, 2012, whatever. We're going to be looking at this whole period as a period of escalating social tension. I don't think we'll call it the Occupy Wall Street movement or whatever. You know, we can use that to describe the sort of igniting events of 2011. But I think we'll, we'll think about it as part of a broader period. You begin by quoting a letter from Karl Marx to one of the founders of the Socialist Party of America, Friedrich uh, Adolf Sanders, uh, dated November 5th, 1880, in which Marx writes, I should be very much pleased if you could find me something good, meaty, on economic conditions in California, of course, at my expense. California is very important for me because nowhere else has the upheaval most shamelessly caused by capitalist centralization taken place with such speed. What is meant by capitalist centralization? Because capitalists often argue against centralization and claim it is not caused by capitalism, but socialism. And are we witnessing that today in Silicon Valley? Are we seeing capitalist uh, centralization in Silicon Valley? And how can there be capitalist centralization if, you know, that's only something that happens in communist countries? It's a great question. Uh, and one of the real thinkers that I look to in the book is Paul Barron, who's a, got a book that he wrote with John Sweezy called, uh, or with Paul Sweezy called uh, Monopoly Capital. And this is analysis that goes back to Rudolf Hilferding and it goes back further than that, you know, and goes back to Rosa Luxemburg and directly to Marx, which is that the capitalist class operates, you know, oligopolistically, operates functionally monopolistically. And as capitalism, uh, grows and takes control in places, it centralizes its command uh, through oligopolistic and monopolistic structures. Um, and they understood this with regard to imperialism, 
that imperialism would uh, the 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 need for the expansion of capital required the securing of new markets in a way that could only be done through state and state aligned uh, enterprises. <clears throat> and so this is an analysis that, and, and Paul Barron ends up at Stanford University where he's teaching some of this stuff, um, non-coincidentally, because there's so much centralization of capital and capital's function, in, in, especially in this post-war period around Stanford, around California, around the Bay Area, and around Palo Alto. So if you go back to the 19th century and the function of finance capital in California, uh, capital top down, you know, the capitalist class is controlling production uh, in California from the beginning in a way that they weren't able to do in other places because they had to evolve naturally through the local structures. But when the Anglo-American settlers come into California, they wipe it clean as best they can, right? And so when he talks about capitalist centralization escalating, you know, shamelessly as fast as anywhere else in California, that's what he's talking about is a, a map that's been wiped clean by Anglo-American colonization and starts, you know, ex nihilo from capitalist uh, premises, which again, like does not happen very much throughout the world, right? You have to develop, you know, through feudalism or whatever. But feudalism's hold in Alta California, you know, Spanish colonization uh, overthrown by Mexico was very, very thin. And so when capitalism comes in, it does, it basically refuses to contend with those um, existing feudal elements. It wipes them off the board, you know, delegitimizes their claims. Uh, and so you see this place that had been previously the furthest corner of the world as far as capitalism was concerned, right? No one could really colonize uh, Alta California very effectively. It goes from being this furthest corner of the world, you know, the, the furthest boondocks, you know, no one wants to go there, to the center of a new capitalist world that is now circling the entire globe for the first time, you know, a single production system is encircling the globe. And California becomes this center for capitalist technology and capitalist development from the beginning, right? Like you're looking at uh, mining technologies and agricultural technologies that are being developed as soon basically as those uh, gold miners are showing up, right? You have capital staying out west and developing this new place along new lines. And that's what California ultimately comes to represent. You write of your life in Palo Alto. I spent the second half of my childhood on quiet cul-de-sacs in the very nice uh, place. My life felt traditionally United States suburban, a lot like what I saw on TV. But every now and then, something else shone through the figurative fence posts at the edge of town. There were signs that if Palo Alto was normal, it was too normal. It was weirdly normal. How is Palo Alto weirdly normal? What do you mean by weirdly normal? So if you walk around Palo Alto, even in its what are supposed to be its industrial districts, it's hard to see any industry. There aren't any factories. You don't see any smokestacks. There aren't even any big buildings, despite this being one of the most productive industrial areas, uh, areas of the post-war era. Uh, and that's from the beginning. The town was very concerned with how they could combine high-tech production with 
the sort of suburban benefits that would lure the kind of people who they wanted to work in this high tech production. And so they made all sorts of zoning rules like uh, grassy setbacks and height limitations for the buildings. And so even in these buildings where you have, you know, the real heart of Cold War American industry going on, uh, there are these little buildings that look like dentist's offices and they're hiding behind bushes and these grassy lawns. Uh, and it's doing so very intentionally. And so you've created a town, you designed a town uh, that exists to hide itself from itself. Uh, and that leads to a bizarre way of being. And even like way back, even before that, uh, this disjuncture between the like bucolic uh, suburban, what the early suburban was supposed to be bucolic, right? It was supposed to be like grassy fields and orchards and whatever. And the like high tech engine of American empire goes back to the beginning of the 20th century, even when like William James, the philosopher, was brought out to Stanford University for, uh, for a semester and starts writing about how this place is creepy and how it's giving him the creeps. And like, you know, he starts worrying about that he's having other people's dreams are entering his head. Um, and so there's always been from the beginning of Anglo-American colonization in the 20th century, really, when you get out of the gold rush period, the separation between the promise of California as somewhat somewhere peaceful you can go, uh, but then also somewhere that's producing uh, a new, very not peaceful empire. It's always been peace secured by war, both in one place. And, and that's creepy, right? And that leads to a feeling of psychic unsettledness. So is that, is Palo Alto uh, hiding itself from itself? Is that sustainable? It, we're going to talk about uh, the rash of suicides that happened in Palo Alto in a moment. Do you think that that contributed to that rash of suicides, that it's just simply unsustainable to hide, to have Palo Alto hide itself from itself? Well, it depends what, you, what costs you're willing to bear. And so the you talk about suicides. There's, there was another one this past week on the train tracks um, by a member of the Palo Alto community died by suicide on the Caltrain tracks, which is what you know, how I start writing the books is about members of the young people in the Palo Alto community keep dying by suicide on the, the train tracks. Um, and the town has shown itself basically willing to pay that cost, right? Willing to sacrifice young people uh, at a higher rate than other places with the knowledge that they get something back in return, which is also like, not just creepy, but like haunted, right? That's like a classic form of uh, like sci-fi almost haunting or fantasy haunting. It's like you have this nice society that looks really great uh, and is producing all these great things and everyone seems really happy, but like they don't tell you about the, the child sacrifice that goes on. Uh, and that like Palo Alto has an element of that and they're willing to pay that cost. And so you talk about sustainability, like capitalism is not sustainable as a mode of production, right? It's exhausting. It is constantly exhausting. It's constantly looking for new things to exhaust. We've only had it for, you know, as a planetary system for fewer than 200 years. It has almost exhausted the entire planet's capacity to host human life, you know? Uh, but within that system that is exhausting and is non-sustainable, Palo Alto has been a, a sustainable solution to its problems, right? When, when capitalism runs into the problem 
what I characterize as the problem of equality. If all people are equal, how can some people have more? Uh, Palo Alto consistently provides sustainable solutions to that problem, uh, anchoring privilege in this country. You mentioned going to elementary school, and you talk about how you were spooked when a substitute teacher came in, and instead of using the regular scheduled curriculum, the substitute sat us down on the carpet and tried to tell us something important. They said, you live in a bubble, her voice strained and urgent. The rest of the world isn't like this. Do you know that? And you add that some of my classmates told their parents about the unscheduled bubble lecture because when he returned, our uh, regular teacher apologized to us what hap- uh, for what happened and reassured us that the bad substitute wouldn't be back, that the district had blacklisted her. If that was supposed to make us disregard what we heard, it had the opposite effect on you. What did it reveal to you about Palo Alto that someone was punished for telling students that Palo Alto is a bubble that is unlike the rest of the world. Why are Palo Altoans in denial of that bubble that they live inside? It's another sort of sci-fi moment, right? Where you have someone come in and try to tell the children of the place that like, you know, you think this is good, but this is, you're trapped somewhere and you don't want to be here. And then that person gets disappeared. which is, you know, a little bit of a, a dramatized retelling of it by me, uh, but it is how I remember it, more or less what happened. Um, and I think it's important for the community that it not learn these lessons or when it does, that it's able to put it behind it because it gets to the foundation of the town itself. And like the reason people have, especially when I was growing up there, the reason people lived in Palo Alto was because the schools. And the schools of Palo Alto have a long, you know, history as a state eugenic project to, to like secure American empire through the production of exceptional young Americans who would be involved in the security industries, right, in the war industries uh, on a like science and technology side and produce the weapons of tomorrow needed to secure the American place in the world, you know it's very hard to learn about that and then do it, right? You can't uh, be forced to think about your role in the world. And instead that what we teach, not just the children of California, but I think what we teach uh, Americans in general is instead a story of natural progression, even back to elementary school where you learn like, all right, you're going to learn about the Indians in second and third grade. And then you're going to learn about the colonists in fourth and fifth grade. And those lessons aren't really going to overlap and you're just going to have a sort of Hegelian, you know, progression through the races of history um, so that you can feel like what you're doing is natural and what you're doing is preordained and that you don't have a choice, which I think is is a very important lesson for the system to communicate, especially to those children. And if you have that feeling of no choice, then it's no doubt that you would have suicides or just you know, massive depression amongst young people. You write the community experience, not two clusters, but a constant flow of tragic deaths in the 21st century. It continues. You, uh, As you were saying today, uh, there was just a suicide just in the last week. This has to challenge a community that had thought it was normal, if not better than normal. How has the community reacted? Has it been changed by this age of suicides by young people? You know, I think what it has done from my perspective is to reveal the limits of how a place like Palo Alto can reform itself. 
And I write about that in the book that it's like, it's not like the powerful parents of Palo Alto are not concerned for the lives of their own children. Like, that's not true. They're not individually saying like, oh, well, it's worth it if my kid dies because, you know, the system keeps going. Like, they don't feel that way. And I know a number of families who, after the death of their child, left town, you know, left the community uh, because that's why they were there in the first place, you know. Um, but in terms of how the, the community was able to try to reform itself to address the sources of what we, I can see is this epidemic of youth suicide in this community. At first we saw stuff like they were trying to cut down on work a little bit. They would, you know, we had had these things called homework holidays where they said, you know, a couple of days a year or a couple of days a semester, you'll have off from homeworks that you can go and enjoy life and presumably feel less pressured and sad. Um, and of course, teachers still had to get through the same amount of material. So they just gave us twice as much homework on the day before, you know, these systems, any sort of reform efforts uh, failed because what they were trying to solve was already a solution. And I think that's the part that Palo Alto has a hard time understanding is that the high pressure situation that they've created for the children in their community is a solution to a, you know, historical national problem. And you can't solve that solution, right? You have to deal with the externalities, the consequences, or you have to go back to the root of the problem um, that Palo Alto is designed to solve, which is how do you maintain inequality in a world where everyone knows about each other? And if you don't want to solve that problem, then you're going to have to deal with the externalities of the solution. And I think that's where the community is now, is dealing with the externalities of the solution that they are, right? Accepting, because it's not like people haven't been cashing the checks over the course of that period, right? That community's gotten fabulously more wealthy, more powerful during this period of, you know, child, epidemic child self-harm. Uh, so are they willing to to pay that price as a community? I think we can look at, you know, I wrote about the month that I turned in my manuscript. Uh, a young person died on the the tracks by suicide. You know, this week that we're having this conversation, a young person in Palo Alto died on the tracks by suicide. It's going to keep happening, uh, and it is keep happening. So, as we have discussed on our show many times in the past, uh, there is an epidemic of loneliness happening globally, not just happening here in the United States. They have a ministry of loneliness now in the UK. We've been talking about this for a long time on the show. Do you think that what haunts Palo Alto ends up haunting places elsewhere outside of Palo Alto? Do you think that Silicon Valley plays a role in that epidemic of loneliness that can lead to suicides? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can look at just the, the you know the products of silicon valley that are designed to route everyone's human experiences through profit centers uh specific profit centers uh in the world uh in order to just like communicate with the people around them and how alienating that is so just on a like you know cell phones make our lives worse kind of way uh sure you can look at silicon valley but i think 
more than that, you get to the question of the problem that Silicon Valley exists to solve, the problem of equality, and you look at like 100 years ago or even 50 years ago, 60 years ago, the question of inequality in the world was up in the air, right? It looked like with the anti-colonial movement and the communist movement and even, you know, social democratic movements, uh, that the world was going to be an increasingly equal place and that the divisions between people based on gender and race and nationality and language were falling apart and that they, they would be impossible to maintain. And instead, we've seen one where they've been not just secured, but reinforced. And Palo Alto has played a very important direct role in that, not just in California or in the United States, but all around the world, right? Sometimes people ask me, like, where is the Silicon Valley for somewhere else? You know, where are the, where are the other Silicon Valleys in the world? And I tell them that Silicon Valley is the Silicon Valley of the rest of the world and always has been. And you look at the role Silicon Valley has played in supporting dictatorships throughout the world, uh, unequal social structures throughout the world, and securing them through the challenges of the later part of the 20th century, whether that's through like support, you know, giving rich people a way to put their money offshore in somewhere where they know they can access it. It's say in like California real estate, which is an important role for like ruling class coteries throughout the world, um, or exporting signals intercept technology to dictatorships throughout the world so that they could repress uh, uprisings and insurgent movements within their country. Like Sil Silicon Valley has been an answer to the forces uh, for the forces of inequality throughout the world and that persists so it's not just that like the products the cell phones that they make are alienating or whatever or they like make us sad but like exporting computer systems to chile allowed them to put people's names in a database to make sure that they killed the people who they wanted to kill uh and we're still dealing with the consequences, right? Like the children of those murdered people are alive, you know? So uh, we need to think about it in that like specific historical way as well. We are speaking with critic and journalist Malcolm Harris, author of Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. You write of this fascinating history of the beginning of Stanford University and this, the passing of its leadership from Leland Stanford and his wife Jane to University President David Starr Jordan. While evidence now shows and doctor's records at the time recorded that Jane died from strychnine poisoning, Jordan quickly made an announcement shortly after her death that it was heart failure. You write, what did Jordan really want and why was it worth killing for. While Leland Sr. wanted a trade school and Jane a liberal arts uh, palace, uh, Jordan built a global headquarters of science instead. One new science in particular struck him as the foundation of the rest. That science was bionomics, which you explained was from the British polymath Patrick Geddes. Uh, Jordan took the name for the new science of evolution, bionomics, derived from the Greek words bios for life and namos for law. Though it didn't last long under that name, bionomics, with its vision of de degenerate races and outstanding normal heroes, underpins Palo Alto's ethos into the present day. So was bionomics 
just another word for eugenics? And how does eugenics impact Palo Alto to this day? No, bioeconomics went further than eugenics because it it took eugenics and the insights eugenics for the like fundamental reality of existence. And so it was really like eugenics elevated to a religion, which is that it not only explained, you know, competition between species, but competition within species, within social groups, within between genders, you know, between races um, of within the species of humanity. And so you took what was, you know, at best, maybe a, a progressive science of evolution and turned it into a like religious political faith um, under this name of bionomics. And so it's a lot more like something we recognize today as uh, evopsych, evolutionary psychology, um, is like almost exactly the same as bionomics in terms of what it was teaching, right? Which is that these strictures of uh, domination and competition um, is the outline for all forms of interaction on earth period and that that had implications for the national project and so it wasn't just like eugenics as a uh, you know david star jordan who we're talking about was an ichthyologist right he studied fish and so bionomics um for fish was about studying fish in an artificial environment that is meant to mimic its normal environment. Uh, but they took that and developed it, what they understood its implications to be as a whole science of society. <laughs> That's just amazing. So you write the key to the effort was Jordan's 1898 recruitment of his former Indiana student and eugenics devotee, Elwood Patterson Cubberly, who worried that new immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, as well as Japan, were diluting America's stock and causing racial indigestion. So is there a history and maybe even a current culture in Palo Alto that either fears outsiders or degenerates strangers or both? Is that still happening today in Palo Alto? Absolutely. Well, but it wasn't just about, uh, you know, fear of strangers or keeping others outside or outside the gene pool, because this coexists with uh, global labor flows. And just as much as eugenics was one of the contributions of Palo Alto and the Palo Alto community, so was global labor arbitrage and the idea that you could bring people in from around the world and pay them less money to work for you, even though their work was just as good. And this goes back to Leland Stanford and the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad, where the the associates of the Southern Pacific Railroad and the Central Pacific Railroad um, brought in Chinese workers to complete their end of the Transcontinental. And that's a strategy that's continued through the entire history of California and Palo Alto into the present day, um, with like, you can see H-1B visa holders working in the tech industry and how some tech firms prefer H-1B visa holders because they're dependent on their employers, not just for their wage, but for their immigration status. And that's a, that's a relation that goes all the way back. Um, and you have eugenicists, you know, people who believe in eugenics doing the same, same practice, right? So the two coexist, uh, very cleanly in fact, right? So Believing in an order of races doesn't necessarily mean you only want your kind around. It also means you're able to use that idea uh, to increase the overall level of labor exploitation. 
So was Bionomics, was Stanford University, were they trying to scientifically prove white supremacy with quantifiable metrics? Was that what they were trying to prove? That was one of the things they were trying to prove, absolutely. And so you see uh, Lewis Terman, who is another guy who was brought in from Indiana University as part of that Bionomics crew, even though he ends up working under the the title of psychology, in fact, becomes a uh, president of the American Psychological Association. And one of his early, big early contributions was to take this test that had been developed in France and to change it around to make it a test of IQ for anyone, that you could test anyone's that they believed they had a, a test. And it was a very bionomic type innovation, which is that they do believe that they derived this test, created this test that could pull out a real natural quality from humans um, and put it in, in a way that was countable. And they used this test, yeah, to like test different races and assign different races uh, IQ tendencies and then to pursue segregation. And so you see one of uh, Terman's students studying, you know, how many Italians there are per classroom in the Bay Area schools and how you can separate the Italians out because they are Negroid and like they're the Negroid Italians are dragging down the IQ scores of the, the Anglo students in the schools. And so that's some of the like style of intellectual work that's coming out of Stanford in the period. And you write that Terman's Stanford Binet scale was bionomics for humans, a test meant to summon general intelligence from within an individual, pulling it out where scientists could capture and quantify it. The test, is, in fact, did nothing of the sort, asking questions like, what is Christy Mathewson's job? Answer, pitcher for the New York Giants. Sports trivia was a fine way to test what was a rickety trait in the first place. The idea of a unitary general intelligence is a convenient myth, one that collapses as a scientific concept the minute you put any critical pressure on it. Plenty of Terman's contemporaries said as much at the time, but the IQ test sold very well, and he followed with a standard achievement, a Stanford achievement test that sold even better. Together, they made their lead author, a star in psychology. So here we have something that contemporary, contemporaries are saying is not you know, something that actually exists, that it is a myth, yet as long as it sells, it is embraced. Do you think that legacy is, has an impact on what is happening in Silicon Valley today, that it doesn't matter the impact or the consequences of any new kind of idea or technology, because consequences just don't matter. Yes, but I think you can go even more specific that you look at the culture of Stanford researchers and professors um, also forming in the private sector at the same time. You know, that's a story that is traditionally told around the post-war era around Lewis Terman's son, Frederick Terman, who leads the sort of birth of the Stanford tech uh, industry, the tech defense, you know, Silicon Valley industry um, at the Stanford Industrial Park, where Stanford sets up a space for companies to, you know, do their private work and links them with Stanford professors and Stanford grad workers for all sorts of stuff. But really, it goes back even further to Lewis Terman getting paid for all these intelligence tests. Um, and this is really the first cohort of Stanford University, more or less, like the very beginning. Professors were saying not just, OK, how can I 
pursue knowledge at this university, but also how can I spin my research off and acquire some financial independence? And, you know, Lewis Terman didn't, you know, become a tech entrepreneur and get super rich or whatever, but he did with that money uh, support his own research. So he was able to like uh, conduct it in the ways that he wanted, as well as end up supporting his son Frederick's research uh, later and some of the tech companies around Palo Alto. So he really is the the birth of that model. And we can talk about it very specifically. And we still have that at Stanford now, where the current president is a you know, former Genentech guy who's now under heavy, heavy scrutiny for having falsified uh, data in his studies during his for-profit days. Um, but that's the like environment of the community and its scholarship is not just like, what can you find out, but also how rich can it make you? I want to make certain that everybody understands your book is 700 pages long and there's no way we're going to be able to talk about everything that's in the book. So I want to move toward your solution, if you will, for the problems of Silicon Valley. You write, what does it mean to abolish Silicon Valley? Asks tech worker Wendy Liu in her prescriptively titled book, Abolish Silicon Valley, which I cannot believe I missed somehow and didn't have her on the show. Uh, Liu's conclusion is that capital's ever accumulating need for profitable sinks is incompatible with the kind of democratic control over modern technology that the Black Panther Party put on its program. Based on what we've seen of Palo Alto's 150 years it's hard to disagree. Profitable sinks are bad for democracy. So, you know, can they be made unprofitable so there may be democratic control over modern technology? Can this be fixed with just simple reforms? I don't think so. <laughs> and I haven't seen any evidence that it's able to correct its own problems. And I think that's because we have a, a system that is two things, fundamentally two things, both uncontrollable and exhausting. And when you have a system that's both uncontrollable and exhausting, it's only a matter of time before it destroys uh, the foundation for the livability of people on this planet. And we see this from the beginning when you see, you know, Marx talking about the shameless centralization of capital. that's happening ecologically as well. So you see in the gold mining industry, it transitioned very quickly from, you know, individual guys with pans panning in the river uh, to hydraulic crews that are channeling whole rivers at mountains so that they can put the soil, you know, through a filter basically. And the one of the towns where Leland Stanford, you know, starts his political career, the hydraulic miners undermine the foundation so literally that the whole town slides down a hill. Uh, And so that's the system what we're dealing with. And at no point in the past 200 years or so, you know, less of planetary capitalism has that system been able to look at what it's doing and say like, okay, this is destructive. We need to find a new form of social metabolism not just, you know, we need to change one thing to another thing, but we need to analyze the fundamentals of the system. It's not able to do that, right? It's, that would be like eating its own tail. Uh, it's not possible. And so we've got a situation where the representatives of that system, their job isn't to solve our human problems. 
it's to solve that system's problems on its own terms. And so when we are trying to negotiate with the, the representatives of that system, and I talk about historically, you know, all these efforts to do so, uh, trying to get them to use reason and look at these situations like a person, they consistently fail to do so. And maybe the, the most human thing they can do is explain why and say, look, it's not me. If you can get, I could quit, you know, I could lose, but then you just have to deal with the next guy. What you're talking about is a system. And so that's how I come to understand it in the book. And I hope that's how readers come to understand it as well. You write that Silicon Valley isn't destroying itself. It's destroying the world. And you write that Silicon Valley is defined by a refusal to stop or even to slow down, which, given the dynamics of finance-led growth, would amount to the same thing. So is the genius, if you will, of Silicon Valley not its computer-oriented high-tech innovations, but its financial innovations? And if so, how do you think it is viewed differently when the first image you have connected with Silicon Valley isn't, you know, high-tech innovations, but instead it's finance and venture capitalism. I think even deeper than finance and venture capitalism, because there's a there's a tendency for people to think of it all as like finance fluff and fraud, uh, and there obviously is some of that, but I think there's something real and substantial underneath that, and that's the, the American imperial project, right? And that's the a scarier thing than just thinking about it as finance and fraud. And so they think about it on, on these terms that the, the industry itself would have us think about Silicon Valley and its products in terms of the personal computer and the microchip. Maybe the critics of finance would have us think of it in terms of like pets.com or, you know, or Webvan or any of the, or even Facebook. Um, and what I'm asking people to think about it instead is in terms of nuclear missiles, because that's where the entire first generation of silicon chips went, is nuclear missiles, right? I'm think, asking people to think about signals intercept technology that are being used by the Shah um, to arm the secret police to repress dissent, you know? That's how I want people to think about Silicon Valley, not, not either as this unfolding of human technology um, or this just sort of like fluffy place of uh, con men, but as part of this American imperial project of the 20th century. Is Silicon Valley then a tool for what began in California, what began, you know, 150, 200 years ago in California? Is it Silicon Valley just a tool for continued colonialism, a high tech, financialized, heavily funded colonialism? Yeah, well, I, I would say capitalism even more broadly. That colonialism is a is a a tool of capitalism as we understand it, and that Palo Alto is not just a tool of capitalism, but really like the tool of planetary capitalism, in a way that I didn't uh, even expect or understand when I started this project. That that's not how the industry talks about itself. That's not how the region talks about itself. But when you actually look at this history in the sort of long durée from the 1870s to now, it's really clear how essential and important Palo Alto has been to this project that I really do think is a, a sinister project um, throughout that whole period and into today. You're right. I'm committed to this planet, which means I have to hold on to the possibility of an alternative to capitalist exhaustion. What then would that look like? What else is Palo Alto to do with itself? 
How about giving it back? I can't know what it would be like in practice for Stanford to withdraw from Palo Alto, and I understand that at first it probably strikes many readers as a maximalist proposal, but in the context of the exhausting trends we've observed since the Anglo-colonization of Alta, California, returning the land strikes me as downright pragmatic. And you quote the uh, indigenous writer, Nick Estes, writing, for the earth to live, capitalism must die. Do you think that we have to choose between Silicon Valley surviving or the planet surviving? Is it Stanford or Earth? Yeah, I think I think that's what it is. And no matter how many press releases Stanford issues about their new sustainability school or the claims that Silicon Valley is making about their, you know, new decarbonization token economy or whatever, uh, we're looking at a situation that is dire, right? Ecologically dire for the people of Earth. Uh, and who can we blame for that, right? Like, who do we look at? Who is what systems are pushing us toward that brink? Uh, and for Silicon Valley and Stanford and Palo Alto to step forth and say, well, we've got the solution. We're the tech guys. We're the solution guys. You've been, we've been solving all, all your problems for the last couple of decades. Well, we can do this one too. Um, again, that's a product of their forgetting. And if you look at the long history of Palo Alto, it's clear that these aren't some guys who showed up recently with solutions and have more solutions to give. Uh, they're the, the, origin of the current status quo right those are those guys uh, and we need to understand that historical lineage and if we forget we're in danger of voluntarily giving them more power than they've already got we have been speaking with malcolm harris author of palo alto a history of california capitalism in the world this is malcolm's third appearance on our show search on his name at our website this is hell.com to find the other interviews we've done with him find out more about palo alto at palo alto the follow malcolm on twitter at big mean internet as we do with all of our guests and you may or may not remember our final question is always the question from hell the question i hate to ask you might hate to answer or our audience is going to hate my your response or they're just going to hate how long-winded this question is so prepare yourself malcolm uh you write that at every step capital used up working people churning through Earth's only truly inexhaustible resource, that Amazon is a market leader in workplace mechanization, labor exploitation, and low-end wages all at the same time is deeply concerning. Jeff Bezos is pointing a way forward for technology and not one that makes life easier or better for labor. Instead of making progress toward the widely prosperous, if not equal or egalitarian society that capitalism promised, things are getting worse. Which made me think of, you know, Martin Luther King's 1963, I Have a Dream speech about the broken and unfulfilled promise of equality that is in the founding documents of the United States, but then is contradicted within many of those same founding com, uh, you know, documents. We live in a nation that has broken its found, uh, foundational promise of democracy and equality, a promise of all having equal access to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, promises that were then broken in the founding documents. Like I was saying, we also live in a nation that embraces a political economy that also does not fulfill its promise of a widely prosperous society, not one wherein a few have massive wealth while the rest of us suffer. Does U.S. democracy not fulfill its promise because capitalism does not? Or is it because capitalism does not fulfill its promise 
that U.S. democracy does not. What is the relationship between the broken promise of democracy and the broken promise of capitalism? I've never been that invested in the promise of democracy, or at least not since 2008, when it was very clear to me that this this uncontrollability was a fundamental character of capitalist system. And if it's fundamentally uncontrollable, then I think you no longer lay the fault at the like particular movements of the American political system. Um, and so the I don't I don't have much of a like imminent critique of American democracy because I have this sense of uh, its own history. And so if you look at like the massacres of indigenous people in California, a lot of these are going on by uh, you know Republican forces theory in theory, right? Northern forces, the forces of good in the country during the Civil War. You have uh, Union troops coming back from the war to go suppress labor actions uh, in the mines in Alta California uh, directly, coming directly back from securing this new nation to repress Chicano workers uh, in the mines or indigenous workers in the mines, really. Uh, So personally, I'm like an anti-constitutionalist. I don't have any uh, big investment in those founding promises. So I think the analysis of capital um, is more fundamental than any sort of analysis of the American political system. Malcolm, it is always a true pleasure having you on the show. I really appreciate every conversation that we've had on the show, and I want you to start working on a new book immediately so we can have you back on. Uh, but right, we'll, i got to go four for four. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But uh, I'll stay in contact with you because we'd love to have you on the show even before then. I, thank you so much, Malcolm. I really appreciate it. Thanks again for having me, Chuck. All right, take care. This is not the media. This is hell, because if this was the establishment corporate-owned private or public media, and if you don't think public broadcasting is corporate-owned, check out their list of corporate sponsors. Public media was captured by big money a long time ago. If this was that media, you would never hear anyone even suggest giving Silicon Valley back to its by deed legal owners, the indigenous. If what you just heard from Malcolm about the city where he grew up, Palo Alto, blew your mind like it did mine, show your support for becoming by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which is podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell every week. Or you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support. Dan, please remind us what's this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Well, this week's question from Hal is, where are you conducting your secret war? Over at Patreon, Lorian has written us a a little play. Uh, They say, well, you go straight on Magnolia, then you take a left on Jefferson, and it's the first gate on your, hey, wait a stinking moment. You're an effing blankety-blank agent. I knew it. So, yeah, it's that first gate on your right apartment 3B. Knock before kicking in the door, please. Take off your shoes. Thanks. Bye. What? The? I don't know, man. That's what he wrote. I like I did that. My best by it. I try to do give it uh, I justice. Liked, I liked your moving back from the microphone. Yeah, that was very good. Very uh, nice. Consummate professional. You are. <laughs> Over Facebook way, Wojciech R answers anywhere there's oil. That's where. No. Wojciech is conducting okay, okay. his secret war. Carlos C answers in a porter potty. Sick. 
there. It right? says, in a porter potty porter on the potty. last day of Lala Palooza. I see. Melanie K. answers, in the space between having empathy for others, knowing that they're doing their be the best they can, and not giving a whoop, they are still a terrible piece of swoop. <laughs> but they didn't. I did that. Uh, over Twitter way, we got Rock Taster, and uh, they answer, uh, Lakes Poopo and Titicaca takes water to get that lithium. All right. Uh, that's all we got for now. All right. Uh, so uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell stuff you want. You can see all of our stuff at thisishell.com and clicking on support. And we will be announcing the winner following tomorrow's show after uh, Seb Vooper does his segment, The Past Inside the Present, when Seb gives us his historical context from the past so we have a better understanding of our current present. I know that's redundant. But you got to be redundant sometimes on radio. We will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week. Coming up, Jeff with the moment of truth. More of your answers to this week's question from hell. And we'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's show. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. And I know you have Hefe on the line. What? Alien Inconvenience The day had been a tough one for Larkin René Parquet de Parc. It had been full of disappointments. Though he lived in a timeline in which global warming had been reversed in a timely fashion through concerted effort among nations, which meant, of course, the weight of opinion of the greedy and their ability to manipulate the weak-minded had been countered by overwhelming passion for preserving all life now and in the future, no amount of goodwill on the part of others could guarantee that there wouldn't be days when unforeseen difficulties would dominate the hours and thus defeat one's inclination toward a good mood. Such a day was this. Not even the ultimate defeat of the capitalist domination of economies could forestall the inevitability of such a day. The switch from plastics to various renewable configurations of carbon and glass was key to diminishing and ultimately eradicating the pollution of land, water, and air. One would think such a switch would somehow minimize the chance of having a bad day full of bad difficulties, and it may have, but minimizing a chance and preventing an inevitability are two entirely different things. Larkin René Parquet de Parc did one thing and one thing only. He went from town to town, neighborhood to neighborhood, with a very large rock tumbler. He would send out notices a few days before his impending visit, urging people to bring their empty glass bottles. Usually such bottles were recycled by the municipality. De Parc would arrive, not to supplant such services, but as a compliment to them. The bottles that were brought were shattered in a bin, tumbled into Park's rock tumbler and artificially turned into beach glass for use in people's vases, landscaping, and terrariums. Sometimes he would stay more than one day if there was sufficiently high demand. He had recently taken his rock tumbler in for a tune-up, and the following day, in front of an entire neighborhood of beach glass enthusiasts, 
Boud saved their prettiest colored bottles for the entire year, the rock tumbler refused to tumble. Its motor was on the fritz. It turned out that the mechanic tuning it up had failed to replace an important washer. The mechanic had been too lazy to double check her washer checklist. Don't assume it was the absence of profit incentive that caused it. The mechanic was part owner of that shop. As was the case with most businesses, laziness occurs in humans for a variety of reasons. Even a compassionate economy can't prevent it, and certainly an abusive, coercive one won't. So the day was a wash. The rock tumbler would have to go back to the shop where the mechanic would discover her mistake and own up to it because there was no punishment for telling the truth except embarrassment, and she vowed to herself, her co-workers, and depart that she would be more mindful. DePark, for his part, decided to push his schedule back a month and take a month's vacation starting the next day. Maybe he would join his three spouses who were already on a camping trip. There would be no inconvenience to him, nor those who relied on him to turn their bottles into beach glass, except for them having to schlep their bottles back home to await another day. On his bullet train homeward, he found the train people had decided to replace the popular Biscoff biscuits with a type of Madeleine he wasn't fond of. Lotus Bakery in Lembeck, Belgium, had been continuously baking the things since the 1930s. His fellow passengers were unhappy with the replacement as well, and many a complaint was lodged. In the meantime, he had little choice but to opt for a Michigan company's version of the Dutch Stroopwafel, instead. The last straw was when he went to the bar that evening and ordered a last word cocktail. He was told the bar was out of green chartreuse, a key ingredient. The last word was made with equal parts gin, fresh lime juice, maraschino liqueur, and green chartreuse, just as it is in our own timeline. It was the most popular craft cocktail in North America at the moment. Chartreuse was made according to a 500-year-old secret recipe vouchsafed to the Carthusian order of monks. The monks at the French Alpine Carthusian Monastery, however, had decided that catering to the North American thirst for green chartreuse was a lower priority than their ecclesiastical studies and monastic rituals of devotion. The result was that the mixologist decided, with Depark's permission, to substitute Pernod. The result was inferior. It was just that kind of day. DePark's wife, husband, and fluid third spouse were all off on a week-long camping trip together, so before retiring to bed, he read to the children of the neighborhood from a dystopian novel about an alternate timeline where fascism was rising all over the world, multiple wars were being fought to benefit arms makers and dealers, and a global climate crisis was looming with the world's governments intransigent and their populations manipulated by for-profit propaganda corporations. A small class of uber-wealthy oligarchs owned most of everything, including the legal system. Surveillance was wall-to-wall, -wall, day and night, 100% continuous and ubiquitous. Slavery was a common form of labor arrangement, the seas were depleted of oxygen, the rivers were unswimmable, and resources and opportunities were kept in a state of artificial shortage, doled out parsimoniously to the great masses of people. Every attempt at social improvement 
was sabotaged by the infiltration of secret police. The children found the book hilarious. Each new indignity, injustice, or instance of cruelty was greeted with the delirious uproar of childish laughter. It all seemed so outlandish and impossible. And that's the moment of truth. Good day. Jeffy, how are you? I am great. Hey, Chuck, why are you making such a big deal about the tote bag? I've had a This Is Hell <laughs> tote bag for years. <laughs> because... It's not like it's just came upon the scene uh somebody who both you and i know and i don't want to mention on the air because i didn't i don't mean this in any way insulting and i don't want it to be taken that way but somebody came in here with dave buchan uh, at one time and we had the merch laid out and it was we had just started selling a tote bag and the person he was with came in and looked at me and she they said i can't believe you have a tote bag well, I'd like to spank that person. <laughs> um, Not uh, even knowing who she uh, is. Uh, uh. So, yeah, that's why. Because uh, she was like, you know, that's a lot like, you know, that's like NPR. You know, they have a tote bag. Let me tell you something. This tote bag kicks any NPR tote bag's ass. This tote bag is so durable. I mean, like I say, I've had it for years. It's big. It's durable. I can carry lots of groceries in it. I love it. A... Uh, <laughs> A uh, listener on the show, a uh, listener to the show, they sent us an email with a picture of them taking This Is Hell bag when they went to a religious service and religion that they practice. So they took this tote bag into a mosque and everybody was staring at him. He said he could feel like lasers going through the back of his head, everybody just staring at his This Is Hell bag. Uh I wanted to say, yes, I may not have heard, but a uh, friend of the show and friend of ours, Clarence, yes, is going to be studying uh, for his architecture degree. Former in, correspondent on our show, uh, when in we, University of Michigan. Yeah, when, my old mother. Yeah. I mean, alma mater. <laughs> uh, he. Uh, used to report for us. He was a correspondent for us when he was living in the favelas in Rio de Janeiro. Right. At one point in his life, he lived down there for a few years, and he gave us these amazing reports, Hey Young Sung. So, uh, yeah, congratulations to Hey Young, who's a regular listener to the show. Really, that's fantastic that he's going into architecture. He's done some architecture before. He's done some, like, landscaping and that kind oh, of thing. Oh, he's an amazing draftsman. Yeah engineer-minded fellow yeah. in design. He's incredible. Yeah, great artist. Hey, do you want to know what uh, Kennedy Prince sent us? What? All right, so first of all, for people who don't know, and I want to make sure that you understand, I am quoting a letter from Kennedy Prince. Greetings, citizens. We are Kennedy Prince, a conservative anarchist, Negro-owned print shop located in the McDougal <laughs> Hunt neighborhood on Detroit's east side. We are printers... We are not artists. <laughs> Our friend Mimi Machete enjoys your podcast. They inform. Thanks, Kennedy Prince. So they sent, I read the one during uh, Malcolm, the interview with Malcolm Harris. They sent us two new cards, these beautiful cards that we frame and then we give out as uh, raffle prizes during our annual anniversary and listener appreciation party. Oh, yeah. That's happening that on Saturday. Poorly sourced quote from Jameson. Yes, poorly sourced. But you know what? 
what? I still see it sourced to him. I, I keep trying to oh. find a place where it's not. So please send me that. But here's the Upton Sinclair one is what I read during the Malcolm Harris interview. It is okay. difficult to get a man to understand something when his uh, salary depends upon his not understanding it. And then we got another one, and I haven't read this one yet. So let me get this one out. I love Ooh. how on the envelopes it says. Live radio. I know, right? It's great. All right. This is from Henry Ward Beecher. Where mm-hmm. is human nature so weak? As in the bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I can think of many, <laughs> many places. In the brothel? Uh, this one and uh, <laughs> God is Trans might be the, my two favorites that we've ever got from Kennedy Prince. <laughs> I like Mimi Machete. Mimi Machete, you do? I do too. I, I just like her. I don't know her. But I like that she's a fan of the show. <laughs> Jeffy. I like her name. Jeffy. Yeah? Until yeah. next time. What? Stay beautiful. Hi, they. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from Hell? And do we have any more uh, listeners' answers? Yeah, we have a few stragglers. This right. week's question from Hell was, where are you conducting your secret war over Facebook way, Kim G answers, trying to keep my house plants alive without a green thumb. Okay. And then we have one more over at Patreon, where Papa Foxtrot answers, in my Excel spreadsheets, one cell at a time. So the person with our favorite answer, as you know, wins whatever This Is Hell stuff you want. You can see all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support, although you should probably click on stuff. But, yeah, support. Uh, Dan, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? Well, no, we've got Alisa Quart. I think that's on Monday. Uh, no, that's uh, that's two weeks from now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. Then you got. Did know. I have? I thought I gave you a printout. You sincerely uh, did not. Maybe Jesus. you should do it as me. Try to yeah. affect my mannerisms. No, I can't do that. Do you want me to run over to your side of the glass, pluck it from your hands, and then and then tell the the radio listeners? Sure, that's All exciting right, live radio. This is exciting. Dan K. Vamp. <laughs> Dan K. Dan Kugler is going to be our newest producer. He is joining us on Tuesday for his first shift as a producer right at the top of the page there. Dan, are you excited about joining the staff here on This Is Hell? Yes, and I already had my uh, new work uh, nightmares, which are traditionally me coming late. And uh, I was late in my dream, and you had Chuck D as your interview guest live in the studio. So... Well, we'll let's see. hope that all comes true. <laughs> we'll see when the announcement is made for Monday's guest. <laughs> all right. All right. So who is Monday's guest, Monday's Dan guest Hill? Monday's guest is Chuck D. No, no. Uh, Kevin A. Young, who wrote the Baffler story. Brandon Johnson won in Chicago. Now his movement will have to beat capital strikes. Kevin teaches history at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, He's a co-author of Levers of Power, How the 1% Rules, and What the 99% Can Do About It. And he has a new book coming out entitled Abolishing Fossil Fuels, Lessons from Movements That Won. This is how office hours happen every Wednesday evening, beginning around 6 at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. So it's happening tonight. Hang out, enjoy the beer garden and the fire pit. Have a drink or three. Meet me and maybe just maybe other staff members of This Is Hell. I believe Will Ippen will be joining us tonight, as well as others who listen to the show. But the biggest star of the night is always Mel. 
the previously feral Barcat for Carrie's Lounge. Besides, tonight is 420 Eve, and I can't think of a better place to celebrate. Not that anything 420 Eve related ever takes place downstairs, but you never know what happens up here in the studio and art gallery where it's kind of like international waters where anything goes. Another reason for you to join us this evening is it's also National Hanging Out Day, an environmental uh, holiday that promotes hanging out clothes to dry rather than using electric dryers, which I'm all for, while encouraging people, more importantly, to hang out with each other. While there will not be any clothes hanging out to dry, we hope you can hang out, hang out with us and help us write maybe next week's question from hell for our listening audience. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show live streaming, podcast host Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Dan Hill for producing. Welcome to Dan Kugler, who is going to be our newest producer. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. You are here, and this is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.